stand by me. Let's protect this tree from the freeway misery. Who knows how the monster started to grow that way? Her parents are frightened, wish it would go away. But the taxes keep coming, they have to be spent on the big bull. And the tanks of cement stand by me. Let's protect this tree from the freeway. Hello, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, so, we're working on uh, the writings of Aldo Leopold, um, published in a wonderful little volume um, by, by the Library of America. Um, we have gone through a San County Almanac, and now we're deep into his his other assorted writings. Public, some are some are private. Quite a lot of these actually are are manuscripts and typescripts that um, were in his papers, but were never published in any any journals. And some of his good ideas are really stuck in those those pieces. Um, so uh, I really like these. I think if you just read a San County Almanac, you're going to get his big idea. I think you're not necessarily losing a whole lot, but I think there's a lot of great moments, a lot of richness in these other um, shorter writings he did throughout his career. Many of them published in a popular magazine, some published for the Forest Service, some published for um, conservation magazines of various types. Um, so yeah, just a lot of great moments in here, a lot of good ideas. And I'm, I'm kind of watching for the evolution of his ideas. And, and one thing I noticed last time is that the, the idea of the land ethic is there quite early in Leopold's career. Um, but this time we'll be looking at the, uh, the period from 1933 to 1938. Um, so this corresponds to the period where he, he starts to, to begin his work in Wisconsin. So he first goes to the his farm, his the shack, and, and you know he kind of start. He goes to the land that will will become the location of his shack. That's that's the setting of the San County Almanac. He first goes there in 1935, right, and that would be where he he centers himself. He start, actually started teaching at University of Wisconsin in 1934. So moves away from the Forest Service and, and moves into into academic uh, ecology. So, um, yeah, so in terms of his biography, that's, that's where we're at. Um, so let's go look, just jump into some of these, these articles. Um, the first one, now we're still in the Southwest. So as we saw in the previous episode, a lot of his writings in this period are associated, obviously, with uh, the situation in the, in the American Southwest. And of course, it's very different up in Wisconsin. But, you know, this is also a theme, I think, of a San Antonio Almanac, is that the ecological concerns, the devastation inflicted by man on the, on the land varies depending on where you are. Um, so the first article we have here is called The Virgin Southwest. It was uh, another unfortunate, unfortunately for, I guess, the people at the time. It was only a typescript uh, written in 1933. It's really good, um, but... Again, only available to us in anthologies such as this. Um, so, you know, I really think Leopold is a good source for for ecological history. I, I think not not a primary source, of course, but he really has an eye for the history of a of a place, right? And and that's there in the San Antonio Almanac too. But when you read his other articles, you just see how often he's thinking about the deep history of the ecology, right? There's actually something we'll be looking at in the next episode where he talks about uh, 
like things how things were done in the Middle Ages were affecting how like leaves decay and the rate of leaf decay in in Europe now. It's it's really amazing how deeply he paid attention to to the ecological history and how humans, you know, not not deep natural history, but actually how humans have affected their environment in very subtle ways. Things you didn't think would matter turn out to matter quite a lot after hundreds hundreds of years. Now this particular one is um, you know, he starts out talking about human legacy, how we pass on things from one generation to another without really being aware of what we're passing on, right? what legacy we're leaving to future generations. Um, and he, he talks about how, for instance, we don't really observe erosion. Erosion is something that we only can observe over many, many generations. And again, small actions now will have a big impact later in terms of erosion. So it's really about change in the human scale, I think. So I think this virgin Southwest title is a bit ironic because something can look virgin but still be heavily shaped by human hands over over a long period of time. You're just not aware of it. And again, the Indian's kind of missing from all of these articles. I think I'm not going to re repeat that ad nauseum, but it's it's worth rem remembering that he's not he doesn't really see the Indians as, as having the impact on nature that white people did. And I think now ecological, environmental historians realize, indeed, Indians did do that. Indians were very active in shifting their environment and changing it. You know, A more bold argument along this line is the, the one that the Amazon is, is essentially man-made. Um, yeah, so all this gets into just the complexity of land, human scale of... of of awareness and all that and, and that these are all things that have to be grappled with and considered when we talk about things short-term things like development or economic growth or what's profitable this year or that year um, I think as he gets older he gets less and less confident that there can be a reconciliation between these two things between economism and and conservation I think he just realizes there's no way the short term can ever really address itself to the long term so next, let's look at uh, conservation ethic, the conservation ethic. This was published, Journal of Forestry, Journal of Forestry, 1933. Um, pretty long by uh, Leopold standards, about 15 pages. But I think it's important because essentially he talks about the land ethic here again. He, it's, it's another published description of, of how we need to slowly and how we are expanding our ethical circle over time we need to extend it eventually to the land that's essentially the land ethic um, and it's certainly here so certainly by 33 he's got the land ethic clearly and if you had read this article you wouldn't be surprised by anything you see in a San County Almanac but um, but he also then gets into the relationship of land use to civilization a little bit and, and, and the history of that and and I think there's some interesting stuff here. He, he gets back. Uh, he goes back, like for instance, to the American Revolution here, and here again, the Indians are presented just as a, as a throwaway um, presence. In the years following the Revolution, three groups were contending for control of the Mississippi Valley: the Native Indians, the French and English traders, and the American settlers. Historians wonder what would have happened if the English in Detroit had thrown a little more weight into the Indian side of whose tipsy scales, which decided the outcome of the colonial migration into the cane lands of Kentucky. Yet whoever wondered why the cane lands when subjected to a particular mixture of forces, 
represented by the cow plow fire and axe of pioneer became bluegrass end quote so you know again indians just not being part of the ecological history white people are white people are the ones who changed the the landscape um but it's what he's really getting to here i think is the relationship between land land use and civilization of course all civilizations require to, you know, they need the land that's the foundation for their the societies for civilization right um but he gets into the isms he gets into economics and and he makes it very clear here that econo economics cannot solve land use problems you can't you know we still try to do this that's why i think it's important to maybe to mention this again we still try to do this politicians still want to have their cake and eat it too in regards to the economy you know the green new deal will pay for itself the green new deal will create millions of jobs might do that but ultimately sustainability is require rethinking our, our values and we can't just value jobs and economic growth if we want to have sustainability right we could transform the energy grid we could move towards conservation and things like that but as long as we're in a model of, of economic growth three percent per year as long as we're kind of pushing for everyone in developing societies to eventually one day live and consume like north americans it's you know it, at some point malthus will be right i suppose uh in terms of unless we really rethink i, I mean i'm not a malthusian obviously but i think you know if <laughs> I mean, how, where does it go? Do we all end up living like, like, like the king, king of England? You know, I think it's like Murray Bookchin once said, you know, if, even if we had a billion people on the planet, if you're still in a model of endless, infinite economic growth, you're still not going to have sustainability. You could have a population of, of, of a few hundred thousand, one million, like in a Philip Dick novel, and still, you know, if they're all living in castles, with robot servants, like a Philip Dick novel, you're not going to have sustainability there either. Um, so you can't, you can't, you can't use economics as to be to save you here. And he he picks on all the isms. He says socialism, communism, fascism, and especially the late but not lamented technocracy. Um, these things, these things just aren't good. All they they're all basically from the nature's point of view the same thing. They all proceed on the theory that if we can all keep warm and full and all own a Ford and a radio, the good life will follow. Their programs differ only in the way to mobilize machines to this end. Though they despise each other, they're all, they are all in respect to the subjective as identically alike as peas in a pod. They are competitive apostles of a single creed, salvation by machinery. So, a good essay, conservation ethic. I really like this one. Now, this follows up with... Uh, article called conservation economics <clears throat> and you might think well didn't you just say uh you can't have conservation economics yeah i, I think it's true um he doesn't change his mind in just one year this was published in the journal of forestry so the same journal one year later so if you're reading if you're a subscriber of the journal of forestry in the 1930s you, you see oh he just railed last year about the failure of ec economism to, to be conservation. Now he writes an essay called Conservation Economics. Well, really what this is about is, is about the New Deal. So we're, we're uh, by this point, a year into the New Deal, more or less, when this was published. So there's time to think about what impact the New Deal policies had on the land. And he's not that happy about it. 
to be honest. He, he thinks various, I mean, partially, I think it comes down to that it's, it's about economic growth at the end. Um, part of it, the problem is programs aren't integrated, like the CWA, which was the early version of the WPA, and the CCC, another kind of early version of the WPA, but obviously famously dealing with conservation issues and dealing with young people. They didn't like really cross, they were kind of compartmentalized and they didn't really integrate into doing as much as it could. But there's other things like the AA, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which pays farmers for taking land out of cultivation, right? And I think he thinks it could have been an easy fix if you, and he'll talk about the farmer as a conservationist, and we'll see in the next episode. I, th I guess you'd say a better fix would, you don't, don't pay the farmer to take land out of cultivation, just leave land fallow. You pay farmers for restoring like wilderness, if that's possible, right? Right. And he says, like, is the farmer encouraged to reorganize his layout of fields so as to divert this idle acreage permanently to game, forestry, or erosion control? No, that's not the business of the AAA. On the contrary, he is free to clear new woods or push his pastures further up the hill to the actual detriment of forestry, game, and erosion. So this is stuff the CCC maybe was doing, but they weren't. it wasn't in dialogue with the AAA. This is a problem of bureaucracy. This is, we, we still have this problem, I'm, I'm quite sure. So I think this is a good criticism from an ecological standpoint of, of New Deal policies. So I, I think this one deserves some attention by, by readers. All right, next we have, uh, sorry, Arboretum in the University. The Arboretum in the University. It's very short, two pages. It was published in Parks and Recreation. Not the TV show, some magazine, I guess. Uh, in October 1934. It's a little short piece, so I won't say much about it, but... Um, He's writing about Wisconsin, so he's, he's in Wisconsin by now. Um, and basically, this is about civilization as itself a, a violence towards, towards nature. Um, now, ultimately, he's praising the Arboretum, he, the, the University Arboretum, as, as a seed of, of conservation. But he, it's, it's far too little, but essentially... I mean, he says here, um, the scientist does not know the answer. He's been too busy inventing machines. The time has come for science to busy itself with the earth itself. The first step is to reconstruct a sample of what we have to start with. That, in a nutshell, is the Arboretum. Now, I've never seen, I probably should have, uh, the University of Wisconsin Arboretum. If it's still around, but it might be worth a visit to check out. Um, all right, next, land pathology. This was a typescript, um, 1935. Uh, this is just about the unity of nature. It's a good summation, I think, of, of ecology, um, but also a theme he's been really pushing in the 30s, it seems, is the detrimental relationship between society and the land. And he, he lists um, the destruction of, of machines. You know, I'm actually... I'm reading Leopold here and I'm thinking, wow, he sometimes sounds like Lovecraft, like his obsession with like machine culture. Like this was something Lovecraft was obsessed with quite a lot in the thirties as well. I, you know, that might really be an interesting project to really dissect the different theories and, and philosophy about the machine in the thirties, you know, especially, you know, between the wars and you have obviously the mechanized warfare going on, but you also have like the growth of the technocracy and the welfare state and this idea that like, we can kind of, innovate or 
or through government policies, kind of get out of our crises, this kind of more technocratic approach. And of course, you have actually all these developments in technology at the time. So that might be really fun because Leopold doesn't start this way. I mean, but somewhere in the early 30s, he becomes anti-machine and he, and he writes in this, this language of, of machine culture. Um, I'll give you just one taste of it. Before the machine age, destructive interactions between society and land tended to write themselves by automatic adjustments similar to those now seen in animal communities. The early phases of machine civilization occurred on land, especially resistant to abuse. Not all the destruction is wrought directly by machines. The machines release natural forces such as fire, erosion, floods, and disease, and give them an unnatural play, devoid of checks and balances. Machines also, in one way or another, nullify the checks and balances on domestic animals. So, I mean, the title here, Land Pathology, the land is sick, right? It's, it's, and, and he's doing the diagnosis. All right, moving on, next one. Coon Valley, an adventure in cooperative conservation. This was published in American Forests in May of 1935. Um, so this article is talking about a place near La Crosse, Wisconsin. Um, and there's this thing, it's not a New Deal, pro I don't get the sense it's a New Deal project, but maybe there's some government money involved. It's called the Coon Valley Erosion Project. And he talks about its history. Yeah, there is definitely some CCC money here as part of it, but there's other like local grassroots organizations tied to it. And ultimately, local communities, and ultimately what he's arguing for here is a united front of conservation, like multiple social forces cooperate. And he says, this is what was done in fighting erosion in Coon Valley. Um, I have to say, like, when I was growing up in Wisconsin, there was, like, a lot of awareness about erosion, like, whether it was in Boy Scouts or in school or, or when I went to national state parks. Like, a lot of people had erosion on their minds. I don't know if that's still the case, but, you know, but, you know, maybe that concern was rooted in in some of these movements. So I like this article just because, it, I mean, it was true for social movements too. I mean, we now call this intersectional, intersectionalism, I guess. He's kind of calling for, for that here. People would have different interests, you know, but they come together in this desire to fight erosion. Um, so the next essay, Why the Wilderness Society? This was published in The Living Wilderness in September of 35, a short little column really. And this is praising the Wilderness Society, which is which is just a, another ecological group. But he he makes an argument here for their participation and their contribution to ecology. So it, I think this can be compared with the very first essay we looked at, the address before the Rotary Club of Albuquerque, where he talks about the New Mexico Game Protective Asso Protection Association. How much he's moved from from issues of of really conservation for the sportsman to a larger ecological vision. So then we have a couple pieces. They're both manuscripts, both written in December of thirty-five. I think at the same time. The first is Wilderness to an American. Um, they both have this. They're both called Wilderness, but they have two. They, they have subtitles based on the first line of the text itself. So the first one is Wilderness to an American conservationist. And the second is Wilderness, Two Great Cultural Advances. And they don't, 
really fit together that well. These are really just fragments. These are things I think he was writing down, maybe trying to work into an essay later on, but he just he just uh, gave up on it and, and did some other things, I guess. Because the first one's really about the lack of wilderness in Germany. And he had traveled to Germany. Earlier in 1935, this is from his biography uh, at the end of the volume, his, his chronology. So in August, this was August 35, he travels with five other foresters on a fellowship to Germany and Czechoslovakia. They spend three months touring state forests and land estates, consults with foresters and game managers, works in the archives of the forest school at Throndad, and hunts with German aristocrats. So I'm going to come back to this. I mean, he's interacting with, with Nazi ecologists, essentially, and you know, a lot has been written lately about the fascists in Germany and their obsession with the German landscape and, and, and conservation issues. Um, and now he doesn't make a criticism of fascism here. He criticized it before as just another variant of, of technocracy and machine culture. But, um, but I don't know. I mean, he's, he's, yeah, I don't know what to think about. Maybe someone knows. I think it'd be an interesting research project for someone to maybe investigate Aldo Leopold's little adventure with in Germany and, and, and to see who he actually interacts with and, and where they ended up in the, in the Nazi system. Um, or just more generally, how did well-meaning ecologists, you know, function within Nazi science? I'm sure someone's written about that. But I love this ending here. I never realized before that the melodies of nature are music only when played against the undertones of evolutionary history. In the German forest, that forest which inspired the Earl Koenig, one now hears only a dismal fugue out of the timeless reaches of the Carnivoferous. The, the Earl Koenig, of course, is that wonderful poem um, by Goethe and then set to music by Schubert, one of Schubert's greatest songs. Um, so anyways, these are these are kind of interesting, just as as maybe pieces of of a of a, of a larger work that, that never appeared. Um, then we have a threatened species, a proposal to the wildlife conference for an inventory of the needs of near extinct birds and animals. This is published in American Forests in March of 1936. And it is what it is. It's he's basically calling for uh, an endangered species list. Which, um, let's find out when that was actually established. All right, so I looked this up. Uh, the Endangered Species Act of, of 1973. Um, species may be listed as endangered or threatened. Um, obviously, this must have been building off of earlier, um, earlier uh, movements. People like Leopold saying we need to, to inventory this. Um, but of course, it's important. It's this is crucial to protecting species because he writes about this in another essay, which I think I'll look at in the next episode, where he says, like, you know, when we hear, oh, that's the last whatever, last of that kind of bird, it's dead. We feel bad. We you know feel remorse, but it's too little, too late. And we move on with our lives, and then we hear news later on, something else goes extinct, and we feel bad about it. That's kind of useless but if we're aware that a species is endangered we can set policy to protect it we can uh, take action to restore their habitats and whatever else is required to to help that keep that species around and hopefully not just for us not just for our use uh, so you know he's calling for congress to 
get off its ass and to do something for endangered species. It'll, it'll take them 40 years, but they, they, you know, Congress will eventually get there. Um, Congress sitting here because you know Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and now there's all this drama about the Supreme Court nomination. Uh, this right winger that that Trump is trying to get on the bench. And you know what struck, and they're talking about, oh, Roe versus Wade might be overturned. You know, what strikes me about that is for 40 years, Congress has not passed an abortion rights law that, that basically reinforces Roe versus Wade. Have, have they? I mean, otherwise, if there was a law, the Supreme Court would have to overturn that law, which is bigger, harder to do than just to reverse a decision, right? Certainly the Supreme Court could, could very easily say Roe versus Wade is, was wrongly decided. But the bigger scandal here is that Congress has had 40 years to pass an abortion rights law. And they haven't, right? That's, that's, that's my understanding from like civics class how it works. Like the Supreme Court turns down a law, says this is unconstitutional, and then Congress has to revise that law. Or if they make a decision like something like Brown versus Board of Education, that was followed up by like the civil rights laws that were passed in the later in the in the sixties. So, you know, we shouldn't legislate through the Supreme Court. Is my point. Um, but but that's Congress for you. It took Congress forty years to get to uh, an Endangered Species Act from the time Leopold said we need one. All right, enough about that. Um, the next one, uh, Nature Schultz in Germany. So this is the big essay here um it was published in bird lore yeah a magazine called bird lore march april issue 1936 and this is his report on the german trip german trip the germany trip he took and uh it's good um but i kept thinking you're these guys are all nazis aren't they um this is this is nazi ecology i can't not think that i i've read too much about Nazis and their attitude towards the land. I had to try. I'm trying to get. I want to get past that a little bit, but I, I think I need to know more. I think I need to know more about the actual state of conservation movements in Germany, the relationship with with the Nazis and with fascism in general. You know, because it's kind of like the old Wagner problem. Just because Hitler liked Wagner doesn't mean, you know, Wagner was. We shouldn't listen to Wagner. Wagner was better just because the Nazis liked the land. And kind of saw their nationalism manifest in the land. Doesn't mean we shouldn't protect the German wilderness, obviously. Um, but you know, it's not certainly on Leopold's mind. You know, any politics of this. He's just talking about the status of the German conservation movement, um, predators. That's a big thing here. Is is the, the fate of predators, and that's going to be something that's more and more on his mind in his last decade. Um, then we have a. Uh, Conservationist in Mexico, published in American Forests in March 1937. And this is him kind of going back, to putting together some of his thoughts about conservation in Southwest, uh, of course, in Mexico in this case. So it's kind of a similar climate, a similar environment to where he worked before. Now he goes to Chihuahua, Mexico in September. So this, 1936. So this report is a reflection of that. Um, and I'll also note that there's an essay in a San County Almanac about Chihuahua, which kind of does the same kind of evaluation of how humans have disrupted the environment in, uh, in Mexico. 
All right. Um, next, we got Conservation Blueprints, published in American Forestry, his favorite, one of his favorite places to publish, uh, in December 37. Um, and this is calling for, or this about, because it's, it's been done, it, or the government's about to pass the Department of Conservation. So he's been saying this is long overdue. It's a good thing. You know, now obviously he has his doubts about how much government can do for environment. He's, he's criticized like New Deal policies. But I think in his mind, something like a Department of Conservation would be able to, to take these dispersed movements, things like the WPA and the CCC and the AAA and say, well, how can we kind of cross purposes and how can we create some synthesis and, and work together on problems? Um, what does he say here? The real substance of conservation lies not in the physical project of government, but in the mental process of citizens. The road and park or forest is not the thing. What matters to where and for what the park visitor or forest user wants roads. The acreage bought for public parks and forests is not the thing. What matters is whether private landowners regard their forests and their landscapes as a public trust. The fires put out by a CCC crew is not the thing. What matters is whether people are careless with fire in the woods. So in this sense, he thinks it may also have an educational purpose. Right, but you know, he actually does get into New Deal stuff when he, in, this, in this essay. Um, next, engineering and conservation. Uh, a TypeScript essay uh, written in 1938. Now we kind of get to it. We get, I mean, and this is the, this is the question I think maybe many of you have. And it's certainly someone who's comes from a background and an interest in social ecology. I don't want to say I have a background in social ecology, but I have a deep interest in it. And I've read a lot of the social ecologists and I'm, I very much am, love Murray Bookchin. But there, I mean, Murray Bookchin does think science technology is crucial in, in sustainability and, and preservation and these things. That we are, we're not just, human beings are not just of nature. We, we, we have second nature, right? We, we've created communities, we create civilizations, we create societies. And generally, those are pretty shitty for nature, right? But that same second nature which breaks free of our first nature, our, our evolutionary heritage, right? Think of so many things. Think of like marriage, totally unnatural, but most societies do it. Obviously, living in homes and railroads and automobiles and these things are unnatural too, but we do them. Um, we're able to break free of that, but we can break free of nature in positive ways or in destructive ways, right? So obviously, science will be part of it, right? And it's like that the old science fiction trope, you know, it, I guess it's not old anymore. Well, I guess the old one I'm thinking of is, is it Bradbury in, in advanced technology would be indistinguishable from, from magic. And then I heard like the revision of this, a more recent revision that a sufficiently advanced technology will be indistinguishable from nature, right? That technology may more and more re replicate nature. Like these people who grow their homes or, you know, kind of bioengineering things. Is that the right word? I guess bioengineering is the wrong word for that, but uh, I can look it up, but I'm not going to. The, the way people can kind of use plants to, as art, you know, to, to build buildings, right, and walls and things, and we can, you know, actually direct 
the develop the growth of plants to be useful to us but it's totally of nature still right uh, it's still a tree but it's it's literally a tree house right um, or re replicating photosynthesis as a solution to climate change. These are things, you know, we, we're going to learn from nature more, but it'll take technology to do it. Uh, okay, what, am I, what does that have to do with Le Leopold here? Well, he's so hard on the machine culture, right? He's so hard on, on technology. So can engineering be a part of conservation, right? Can, like dams, let's do this. Like, what's the best way to manage water? Dams, concrete banks. You go to Taiwan, in China too, like all the rivers just have these concrete banks. And you got to think like, whose idea was it to manage water that way? And I don't know, they have flooding, I guess. They got to worry about those kinds of things. But it seems such a huge investment of resources and time and energy to to stop na nature from doing what it does naturally, from what it, you know, just, it's, just to stop her from doing what it does. And... So the question is, can can engineering have a positive role here? Um, I think he's fairly skeptical of it, but he concludes the tools which engineers are given are public. The public are so crude and powerful that they invite coercive use. It's not likely that the public will lay them down. The only alternative is the pooling of engineering and ecological skills for a wiser use of these tools. Is this pooling underway? Perhaps. So he's not totally optimistic here, but I think he realizes that, that there has to be a that's getting close to the solution is using this power for good instead of evil. Um, and then finally, we got another typescript from April thirty-eight called "Natural History: The Forgotten Science," which um, I don't have to say too much about it. I guess it's you know it's not forgotten anymore. It's obviously uh, people like Aldo Leopold have have uplifted natural history and ecology and conservation to to one of the most crucial sciences out there so um, but as a historical document of a time when he was feeling a little bit lonely i guess in academic ecology um you know there it is so yeah i guess a little bit shorter episode than last time um we're getting to kind of a lot of repetition of themes here but I do think most of these are worth reading. I think uh, this is a really good anthology. Um, the next episode, I'll be looking at um, the remainder of his assorted publications and, and, and essays. So there'll be another 100 pages or so of that. Then we'll get to his journals and his letters in the final three episodes in this, this series. So having a lot of fun uh, going through the works of Aldo Leopold. Um, hope you're enjoying it as well. Uh, I will um, sign off then. Let me know what you think about any of this stuff, and I will see you next time. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, so I'm going to sign off. i got a baseball game to watch. The Brewers, Milwaukee Brewers managed to make it into the postseason just uh, by the skin of their teeth, uh, only because of the expanded um, playoffs and the weird COVID-19 season. But I'll take it. I'll take a few postseason games, um, even even if they seem kind of gifted. Uh, we'll see what the Brewers do with their their lucky opportunity. They'll be playing the Dodgers in a three-game series starting today. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, yeah, that's that's it for now. I'll see you next time. Thanks for for listening. Now the men on the highways need adventure. those jobs we know. Talk to you later.
planting new trees to grow. Building new parks where the kids can play. Pushing that semen monster away. Oh, stand by me, let's protect this tree from the freeway misery. There's a cement octopus sits in Sacramento.